And, uh, okay, that's gonna be an up close personal of my face. Um, so I'm just gonna have you grab your Bibles and feel comfortable flipping around as we uh, read several Bible passages today to get a picture of the good news that God has for us, um, specifically for the nations. This is, a, this is an interesting good news um, because in this idea that God has good news for us, and, and we read that in Isaiah, that there is good news for the oppressed and the imprisoned um, and the poor and the brokenhearted and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then Jesus reread that passage um, in the beginning of his ministry when he went to the temple and he unrolled the scroll. And he read that very Isaiah passage and said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so he was declaring, I am that good news come to life for everybody. Um, and we learned last week that Jesus was good news for families. He came into a broken family to be good news and to heal families that were broken. Um, and, and today we're going to learn about Jesus being good news for the nations. Um, this is kind of an interesting one, and it takes us from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. So we're going to take a scriptural journey today that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation, and we're going to see how God works his good news for the nation's plan throughout the whole arc of Scripture. So we're ready to go on this journey together because hopefully it makes sense to you. Um, I am going to uh, throw this up here and see what happens when I change. Okay, good news. Let's see what's next. There we go. Uh, the first thing that we want to read um, is in Genesis 11. Uh, the thing is, in, in, in God's beautiful plan, um, the world was not meant to be fractured. Uh, in God's beautiful plan, he made man and woman, um, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. And, and nowhere in that plan was there an idea that we would fight against one another. Nowhere in that plan should brother kill brother. Right? And, and Cain and Abel exemplified how not to be brothers. Um, nowhere in that plan did it mean that we should be cast out of the garden. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the world became fractured. And from that one fracture came a multitude of other fractures. And it just seems that as time went on from Adam and Eve, the more fractured the world got. And we get down to the story of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and it's the ultimate picture of the fracture of humanity. Um, and and it, it looks like this. Um, uh, now, the whole earth had one language. Okay? I don't know what it was, but it was a language. Uh, they had the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found... Uh, a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So this is all the people hanging out together, speaking one language. They were totally unified. Now, and they said to one another, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. That just means bake them. They weren't like making bricks and burning them for the like no point. But they were um, baking bricks in kilns and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, well, let us build ourselves a city and, and a tower within the city, within its top, will be the heavens, meaning this tower will be very, very tall. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are all one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down them and confuse their language so that they may not understand each other's speech. 
So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off from building the city. Therefore the name was called Babel, and it was there that the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is a troubling moment in humankind's history. Um, because once they were united, but they were not united in the way that God designed them to be united. God designed his humanity to be united in unity with him and with each other, um, and not in this way that um, fought against God. But unfortunately, um, humanity in its desire for power uh, and authority and security, they turned against God. So when they built this city, they were saying, we are building our own security. And when they built the tower, they're saying, we are going to rise ourselves up into the heavens to become like God. We want to get high enough to look down on God. They wanted power. They wanted authority and they wanted security. And they were not looking for it united together in God, but they were looking for it united together in their own flesh. And God said, this is only going to end up in destruction. We, we can't have this be what humanity turns out to be. So God um, caused the world to speak a multitude of languages. Again, even in this is a blessing because there are beautiful languages, beautiful cultures, beautiful nations all over the world. God made something beautiful even from the sin that humankind created. But God sent all of these people across the world, scattered so that they would not build this tower to their own strength and their own desires. Unfortunately, though, um, the world decided to, in these nations, war with one another because these scattered people still had this desire deep within their heart to conquer, to find their own security, to overcome someone else so that they could be better than the other. And now we have a world that is fractured into multiple languages, multiple nations that all fight with one another. None of them are seeking God's face. They are fighting, and if you read the biblical history, um, you can read in, in, in Chronicles and 1 Kings and even in Samuel's, um, first and second Samuel, there is an immense amount of war going on. Nations are fighting against nations. Brothers are turning against brothers, and it seems like the whole world is falling apart, and. And, and ultimately, um, I, I, this is a really interesting diagram. I don't know, the, the contrast isn't super great, but can you see all these dots? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, good, you're with me, you're alive. Okay, um, all these dots represent global deaths in conflict since 1400 to current. Um, the larger the dot, the more the people died. So this is World War II right here. Uh, World War One, and then you've got uh, some larger wars that I don't remember because history is not really my thing, but you kind of get the picture. Um, that since 1400 to now, there have been a lot of wars. This isn't the sum total of all human history. This is the largest section of wars and deaths since 1400. Our world is at war, right? Um, our nations are fighting against nations. We are in constant global conflict, some of which our nation is involved in and some of which our nation isn't involved in. And there's skirmishes between neighboring countries all to claim who is superior, all to determine will I have security in my nation or will I not? Everything 
that the folks did before they were scattered in Babel, we are still doing in this world. We are fighting against each other. We are still a world that is absolutely falling apart. And, and what is really horrifying to me, and I, I just, I didn't realize this until I did some Googling um, and some studying on current global conflict. Um, did you know that there are four major conflicts or wars going on right now? One of them started in 1978 um, and is still currently going on. Um, it's the conflict in Afghanistan. So you guys are vaguely familiar with that, yes? Um, fatalities in 2019. Anybody have a guess? No? 41,735. Right? Um, total fatalities... About 2 million since 1978. Um, here's a conflict you might not think about. The drug war in Mexico. Right? Um, that's been going on eh, since 2006 is when they put the start date of that conflict. Uh, any uh, estimates on fatalities in, in 2019? About 12,000. I'm sorry, about 17,000. That's a lot. Um, total, 115,000. Um, what about the, the conflict in Yemen? Um, that's been going on roughly since 2011. There's a lot of different areas in that uh, conflict, a lot of different sub-conflicts. Um, total fatalities in, in 2019, almost 21,000. Total fatalities, about 83,000. Um, 2011, Syrian civil war began. Um, fatalities in 2019, about 10,000. Uh, fatalities total about a little over a half a million um, that's just four current global conflicts um, with fatalities of 10,000 or more <laughs> um, there are current global conflicts there are eight that have fatalities up to 10,000 um, the, there's uh, the Kurdish-Turkish conflict the Somali civil war um, the conflicts in Nigeria the Iraqi conflict Boko Haram uh, ethnic violence in South Sudan, um, the Northern Mali conflict, the Liberian conflict, and then there's even more conflicts that are currently going on that are still conflicts, but there are um, uh, a thousand deaths or less in Kashmir, um, in some countries I literally cannot pronounce, uh, in the Pakistan-Iranian region, uh, conflicts in Myanmar, uh, in Thailand, in Colombia, in Israel, um, in uh, Southeast Asia, um, there's some conflicts in the Philippines, um, in, uh, just, I mean, the lick, can you get the idea here? The list is going on and on. Our world is at conflict with itself. There is no place in this world where peace exists. There is conflict and conflict and conflict and nations are fighting against nations. And we, even as the United States, have our fingers in many of these conflicts. We are not exempt from this. This should be deeply troubling to us. Not, not just because we feel, will we be impacted by this? Because that's a selfish way to think about um, war and conflict. Is this going to cross into our borders? Are we going to be injured in this conflict? We should be disturbed by this conflict in our world because it means people are dying. People who have not yet met Christ. Um, it means that there are um, 
There are nations that have never known peace. There are people who have been born into conflict and will die in conflict. Never having experienced peace. Never having known what it's like to go to sleep without bombs going on. Never knowing what it's like to not have an AK-47 in their home or pointed at them when they walk down the streets. As Christ followers, this should deeply disturb us because Christ has come to offer peace. And, and that's the story that we want to look at today, that God actually has good news for the nations that are constantly in conflict. Good news for a world that is being torn apart by war. Um, and so um, let's go back to, to Israelite history for a moment. Um, in a world, this sounds like a movie trailer, in a world, right? <laughs> where there were lots of nations. Most of them didn't follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Israel was set apart to be a nation that followed God, right? Through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all these wonderful people, God was forming for himself a nation that would lead all of the nations to him. And yet even Israel struggled to follow God fully, to trust that God was their leader, to be united in him and not man. There came a point in Israel's history where they said, we don't have a physical leader. We can't see and touch God, so we want a king. And, and in, in uh, 1 Samuel, the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel, who was a prophet, great prophet. Read his stuff. Phenomenal, okay? Um, and they said to him, behold, you are old. Great way to start a conversation. <laughs> and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Um, oh, that's the wrong one. So appoint us a king. Israel said, we want a king. Reading this way, we want to be like every other nation. We want a king over us who will fight for us. We want a king over us who will provide for us security. This is just building the Tower of Babel all over again. They're just doing it with a person. We want a king for us who will build up our country's walls, who will defend us against Assyria and Babylon and all of the people who want to destroy us. We want a king who will exalt the nation of Israel. The story continues in Samuel. God says, okay, they can have a king, but let them know that it's not going to go well for them. It will not be what they expect. When you try and assert flesh authority, it's not going to go well. It will only end in demise. Later on in, in history, God said this, and this happens to be the verse that's on the coloring sheet in the back. God promises a king for Israel, but it won't be the king they expect. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish because God's people were in anguish. The world was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephitali. But in the latter time, he has made a glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. These people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divided the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Midian was a great battle uh, that Israel was victorious in. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Translation, there will be no more war one day. When the light shines on the nations, there will be no more war. All of the war elements will be put in the fire. They aren't needed anymore. Because unto us a child is born. And to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is pretty significant, is it not? For a world, even up until the day of Israel, that was struggling and battling and falling apart and desiring a king that they could exert themselves over other nations... And frankly, if you read that story, it doesn't go well for them. They actually end up overcome, and the nation of Israel actually gets split in half, and it becomes the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel, and they each get their kings, and the kings didn't always follow God, and that didn't always go well for the nation of Israel, and they struggled, and they struggled, and they struggled, and they wondered, why is this not working for us? Why do we not have peace? Why do nations overtake us? And God said, I will actually provide for you a king of my choosing. I will actually provide for you a king that will bring peace to your nation. And not just peace to your nation, but peace to the world. That will solve all of the global conflicts. That will uh, wipe away all of the war that ever is so that people don't die needlessly anymore. And I'm going to do it because a son will be born. And he will have all of the authority and all of the responsibility and all of the lordship and kingship and he alone will be able to do this god said he would provide a king um so then israel got really excited about this and they said yes god will provide a king for us and we will have that king and the king will do victorious things for us because even though god said they would be would provide a king israel still thought that their king would look like a mighty warrior Israel, for some reason, always had this idea in their mind of a king coming on this massive horse, covered in armor, in this giant sword, going to, like, slay enemies and be violent. That's what Israel was expecting. So down through time, when they talked about the king that was coming, they talked about this mighty warrior king. And in fact, that's what they steeped in their minds so much. You ever tell yourself something for so long you begin to believe it? That's what happened in the nation of Israel. They didn't actually read what God said about a son being born and the humility that God was coming. They actually came to believe that the king would come in, in strength and might and violence to vanquish the enemies so that Israel could be better than everybody else. They still had their own flesh spin on God's promise. But other nations began to hear what Israel said, and it began to seep into the back of their mind as well that, uh-oh, one day Israel's going to have a king. 
and that king is going to destroy all other nations. And that became a problem when the king arrived and wasn't exactly what they expected. Right? So, um, jumping to the New Testament, uh, in Matthew chapter 2, um, it says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, remember, uh, a son will be given to you. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And Herod the king heard this, and he was troubled. And frankly, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And they assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, and the story in between the two is he told the wise men to go find the baby and report back to him so that he could go worship the baby. Um, and the Lord revealed himself to the wise men in a dream, and the wise men said, We ought to not go back to that, Herod. And they went around and skipped Herod on the way back. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years old or younger according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is like genocide of babies. You want to know why? Because Herod was a king, and he was threatened by another king. He had this picture that God's king was going to come and vanquish him. All of Jerusalem was expecting one thing. And Herod got very scared and he said, I am going to lose my authority, my kingdom, if this king takes the throne. So he did everything under his power to war against the king that God had chosen. In fact, he wiped out an entire generation of babies so that he would still have his throne. This is, this is again, horrifying, is it not? Isn't this a wonderful part of the Christmas story, right? This is the part of the Christmas story we don't focus on. That the king, at the time, killed a ton of babies so that he could have his kingdom. This should hurt us because it's sad, but it should also hurt us because we do this in our lives. We want to live our own little kingdom. And we willingly sacrifice a whole bunch of things that is not good because we don't necessarily want Jesus to be the king of our life. Now, we don't think about it that way, but this is why this is here. We're not out demolishing an entire generation of children, but in our own life, there are many things we are doing that are evil in the sight of God because we don't want Christ to be king over our lives. Not totally. We like the salvation, right? But we don't like the submission. And this is where Herod struggled. He wanted to be the king of God's people, but he would not be the king under the king of kings. A little lesson for our hearts. Um, so anyway, this king, this baby, um, though he wasn't what Israel expected, 
He grew up, right? Um, he became the Jesus that we read about in Scripture, the Jesus who healed the blind, made the lame walk, um, hung out with the lepers, um, ate with sinners, thought that tax collectors were the coolest to hang out with, um, and uh, did all the things that Israel and the chief scribes were like, hmm, no, negative. This goes against everything we believe about God and the way that we should live life. Uh, and, and, and so the Jewish people rejected him. This was not the king they were expecting. Uh, but the Gentile people and the leaders rejected him as well because they were worried because he had such a large following. In fact, both the Jewish leaders and the Gentile leaders said, if his following gets any bigger, we're going to have a revolt on our hands, a religious and a political one. And, and we kind of need to do something about this. And so even though Jesus lived a life ushering in the kingdom of God through love and forgiveness and healing and all kinds of wonderful things, um, the political and religious leaders of the day said, hmm, we need to get rid of him. And so they killed him. And even though when he was born, the wise men came and said, the king of Jews has been born and we need to go find him. When he was killed, they hung a sign above his head on the cross, the king of the Jews. And it wasn't a term of honor. It was a term of derision. It was not a nice term, right? Um, and they mocked him with that title when he died. And he died on the cross in our place for our sins because his influence threatened the nations. It threatened the Jewish nation and their identity or what they thought their identity was. Now, it threatened the Gentile nation and the leaders that were in place at the time. But the funny thing is about the king of kings is that you can't kill him, <laughs> right? And so he rose from the dead victorious over death and, and he punched a hole through death and it was a very exciting time and, and Mary um, was the first person who met him, Mary Magdalene, at the, at the tomb. And she got to carry the gospel back to the disciples. And it was a wonderful time. Um, and, and he had conquered it. He had done it, right? And we celebrate Easter because of that. But we have this problem. That the world is still in conflict. Right? So if Jesus is the king of kings, the king of Jews, the one who was promised then why is there still conflict in the world? Do you ever wonder that? Right? Why, why, does, why is there still a lift of wars going on if Jesus really is the king of kings? Um, in, in the book of Hebrews, um, it says this, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? or the son of man that you care for him. You made him, Jesus, a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have put everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's like a true statement of where we are right now. Because we live in a world that is already, but not yet. It is already God's world. He has vanquished sin and death for us, but it is not yet fully in subjection to him. 
Not yet has everyone and every nation and every leader and every heart bowed before Christ and declared him Lord. Here's the good news. 1 Timothy 6. We are to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. That means we should live lives after Christ. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not when he was a baby, right? He already came as a baby. But as Christ followers, we get to live in the kingdom of peace now. And we get to look forward to the day that he comes, which he will display at the proper time. We don't know when that is. The proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, he conquered death, who dwells in unapproachable light, unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion, meaning he is the be-all, end-all of leadership. There is no leader that is over him. He is over every single leader. Scripture says that he raises and lowers leaders whenever he feels like it, according to his will. He is where the buck stops when it comes to kingship. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every nation will fall on their face before Christ. We don't know when that day is. We are living in the in-between where there are people giving their hearts to Christ and making a significant impact on the world around them, bringing the kingdom of God into the world where they live. And yet we still have a world that is strewn with conflict. The only thing, the only thing that will change the face of this world is Jesus. Right? We are not going to reform the world by choosing a better political leader. We are not going to reform the world by having a better system, by teaching people to be moral, but not Christ followers. We are not going to fix the world with a political party or a person. The only way this world will see peace, the only way the hungry will have food, the, the homeless will have shelter, the orphans will have homes, the now, widows will be taken care of. Now, the only way all of the needs of the world will be met in great peace is when Christ is the Lord of every heart. The world will be reformed into peace by Christ. And we, each and every single one of us, have a part to play in that. Each and every single one of us get to do that in our little sphere of influence. And if every Christ follower influences the sphere of influence for the kingdom of Christ, this world will slowly and surely begin to look like Christ's kingdom. We have a great hope, though. Um, Revelation. I told you we'd start in Genesis and end in Revelation. Then I saw heaven open. This is the end of time. And behold, a white horse. Guess what? Jesus does come back on a white horse, just not when they were expecting. Um, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Make no mistake, there will come a time when Jesus will come back and he will judge with authority as a king should. And those who have followed him and trusted him and placed their life in his hands and submitted, right? There's a big word that nobody likes. Submitted their life to him, not in part, but fully. 
will enter into blessed rest in the kingdom of God. And those who have rejected Christ, willfully said, negative, I will not submit to Christ, those are the two eternities that are before mankind. He will judge those righteous and make war with those who made war with him. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. He doesn't just get one crown, people. He's the king of kings. He gets all the crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. One of the things that I can't wait to find out when I get to heaven. <laughs> right? What is that name? And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Lest anybody forget who he is when he comes in glory and his eyes are flaming and he's got a sword and he's on a white horse and he's wearing this white robe and nobody mistakes who this king of kings is. He has it tattooed down his leg, king of kings, lord of lords. This is an impressive sight to behold. And it is on that day that everyone will bow before him, whether they did in life or not. Everyone will acknowledge who he is. And those who have trusted in him will have this eternal rest and reign with Jesus. And those who have not will be separated. And you can read about that in the Gospel of Matthew. Separated sheep and goats, some into rest and some depart from me. But God has promised he will unite all nations. Everyone from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will declare that he is God before the Father, right? And we don't have to wait to see that happen. We have invites to bring people to church, not just to the building, right? We can bring people to church till we're blue in the face. We need to bring people to Christ, okay? When you take these invitations, you need to recognize you're not just bringing them to a church service. Don't just take this and say, come to church with me, right? Take this and say, come to church with me. And the subtext in your mind is so that I can show you who Christ is. So that you can know the King of kings and Lord of lords. So that you can know the love and the joy and the double portion of blessing that comes from knowing Christ. Not just from knowing him, but submitting to him. We don't want to be like Herod, right? We don't want to be like the nation of Israel. We don't want to be at war with Christ. We want to be at peace in Christ. And he offers all of the nations this hope that God is working peace out in our world, bit by bit, heart by heart, hope by hope. And when you read the news and the newspaper and you hear about deaths and wars and famines and all these kinds of things, that doesn't surprise God. It's in here. He tells us that it was going to happen. But he also tells us that he will fix it. Do not be dismayed when you read of wars, but find hope in Christ because he promised he is coming and he promised he will fix it. And we can live in that hope right now. We do not need to be dismayed. He is the hope for the nations and he is paving the way for not fractured nations, but one body of Jesus people to worship him in spirit and truth. The worship team is going to come and lead us. Um, while we are worshiping, feel free to come 
and take one of these invitations and use it as an act of worship. Come and grab one and hold it in your hands, maybe even kneel and think of the person that you are going to invite and pray for that person by name, for the wisdom and the words to say. And maybe you want to partake in communion elements. We have a few of these here because this, this is the meal that takes Jesus on the cross and brings it home to us. It's the meal where we submit before him again, his body and his blood poured out for you so that you would not be like Herod and fight against everything that he is calling you to be in your life but that you would fully surrender like Christ did on the cross, trusting your heart and soul to Jesus, that he would be the Lord of your life. This is what it means when we say, do you want to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life? It means you don't get to call the shots anymore. It means he does. He's fully king, not partially king. He has all the crowns. You have none of the crowns. But that is the very best way to live. Lord, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords that you are the wonderful counselor, you give us wisdom, that you are the mighty God, you come in victory, that you are the peace that you offer us. In fact, when you offer us peace, you're offering us yourself. We need desperately your lordship and kingship in this world. It's easy to see how desperately the world needs it. We can look and we can go, man, the world needs Jesus. And then excuse ourselves from our part in that. Lord, help us to play a part in your kingdom. We read in the book of Isaiah that we are a nation of priests for you. That's echoed in the New Testament. It's not a call that's changed when we give our heart to you, when we confess that you are our Lord and our King, we become priests and ministers of the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. Help us to fulfill our role. Lord, help us to submit to you. Help us to surrender the things in our life that are actively going the other direction than you. Maybe this morning someone's got something on their mind that you are pointing out to them. An area in their life that is much like Herod. We'd rather do our own thing than trust you. But you came that we might know what it is to have peace. And that only comes when we surrender our will for yours as we take the invitations, as we take the elements of communion, as we kneel in prayer, as we stand in worship, may you be glorified as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the mighty one who came to save. We pray these things in your holy, righteous, and glorious name.